Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to work our way around the body head to toe, exploring different body parts and organs and their history in a cultural, medical, social sense. We're going to hear from a historian or curator about their work studying these body parts and their history. And we'll finish up each episode by exploring some of the recipes that were developed in history to treat that part of the body. Welcome everyone to today's episode. I'm Daisy Cunningham and I am the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Heritage Manager and Librarian. And hello, my name is Laura Burgess and I am a volunteer with the Royal College of Physicians at Edinburgh. Today we're looking at the nose past and present. So I've been doing a bit of research into the history of the nose and Laura's joined me here to just give some of her thoughts and, and hear the things that I have to say. And I cannot wait. <laughs> um, so I guess if we start off with, what do you think, Laura? When I said to you, we're going to be talking about the nose today, what came to mind? Less than I thought it would. I don't know. I feel like the nose is such an, um, I don't think about it all that often. Um, past whether or not I want to get it pierced, which I did, or um, I don't really know about its function. I mean, obviously I know about its function, but I don't know anything wider culturally as opposed to just it helps me smell things well I I think that's fair enough but actually that's something that actually gets mentioned in the history quite a bit that in the modern era in the modern world that the nose is not nearly as relevant or important as it has been historically and that actually we've almost tried to suppress the importance of the nose oh so you know the the argument is that you know starting with really with Charles Darwin, I suppose, and his sort of evolution theory, um, and then getting into Freud and the sort of power of the and the importance of the mind, the idea that the nose and smell is somehow more primitive. Uh, it's a sign of lack of development, both in a literal evolutionary sense and in a social sense. And so if you want to be a refined, proper Victorian person, <laughs> then you don't want to be smelling and you do not want to be paying attention to that part of your anatomy because sight and sound are much more socially acceptable I suppose. So there's a social hierarchy for your senses? Absolutely there is a there are primitive senses which we are somehow better than and then there are the more refined senses which can be used to listen to music and to read you know literature and things like that mm. and so it's this real shift and i i think that sort of maybe there's some of the stereotype that we have now when we look back at history in the context of smell is that smell is just disgusting we just sort of assume people weren't washing people <laughs> yeah. were not flushing toilets because that wasn't an option and so the smells that predominated were pretty horrible smells um, imagine that and, and obviously, to an extent, that's true. But I think also smell was a really important part of culture. So they would have sort of smell displays. It would be very normal to have at a theatre, you would kind of waft certain scents into the audience. And we're talking about ancient Greece and Rome, but also later as well. You know, it would be a hugely important part of a meal where there would be certain courses associated with certain perfumes. Um, and I found one fantastic article where they were talking about 
smells as almost like go, almost like going around to someone's house for a cup of coffee. You'd come round and they go, "We've got a new smell." Oh, <laughs> would you like to smell it? And people with different perfumes on different parts of the body. You know, there were all these sorts of rituals, and it was it was really sort of an interesting aspect to culture which we just don't really buy into now. I mean, although candles are very popular, you go into a TK Maxx, you have to battle your way down. I think people are just like inhaling those things, me included, because I'm like, this candle will make my life better. <laughs> but it, but it is something which I think we've to an extent gotten out of the habit of because I can't think of how many times I've had conversations with people in my life about lush stores and how they smell and you don't even have to go in there you walk past just walk past but no there's definitely there's definitely shops you go past and definitely things that and like I said I think like smell is very much connected to memory isn't it um that I'll smell something and hit it like freshly cut grass I would just think of being on the field at school when they when you come out and it'd be freshly cut and it just reeked I used to hate the smell but now I associate it with some happy memories and now I actually quite enjoy it one of the things I was reading was talking about the smell of clothes because the way in which so many different types of clothes are made. So both the tanning of leather and a lot of tweed involve urine, a lot of urine in the processing of those. And that smell would remain for a long time, especially with leather, because you couldn't really wash it clean very mm. quickly. And also certain dyes had very strong smells and often the more expensive dyes smelt stronger. So sort of in ancient Rome sort of time, purple dye, which was usually associated with very elite people, was often made through the crushing of particular insects. So it was literally kind of insect based. Same with red dye later on as well. It was came, came from a type of ant. So that's another level that's added to it. So there's just so many different sources of these sorts of smells. And I don't think people only, you know, engaged with incense and perfume to cover that. I'm sure there were other reasons as well. But I, I imagine it helped make your day a little bit nicer. Yeah, I wonder at what point in time that it kind of became a sort of you you aspire to it sounds weird aspire to not smell obviously I feel like maybe it's a class thing whereas when you're working class or you know in poverty that's the last thing you're thinking about when you eat when you drink how you're going to keep a roof over your head whereas as you get higher in the echelons of, of social class maybe that's what probably why we associate so much because they had the time to think about you know their full presentation of themselves and smell is a very big part of that I mean you'd have to rewear clothes quite a lot and that would again have an odor of, to it you know it's not as simple of course as sort of saying it was it was on this date that people decided to be clean it was it was more of a process over time but um you know even though they figured out that they wanted to be scentless the the process of getting there <laughs> took a, a bit longer I think yeah. Gosh. One of the, the arguments was that in the sort of the Georgian period and particularly in the Victorian period, it became a lot easier for people who were not upper class to ape the upper classes. So you could get cheaper versions mm. of the clothing that aristocrats wore. You know, you could get sort of uh, mass produced nice shoes, whereas previously they'd been incredibly expensive because they were handmade individually for you. And the argument was that smell was a really useful distinguisher because while you could get a parasol that looked a bit like a lady's parasol, you know, this new middle class, you had to have such a different lifestyle to not smell. You couldn't mm. pretend to be that person because you either had a bath every day or you didn't. 
One thing that I find really interesting was um, this idea of a Roman nose. <clears throat> I hear people use this term of a Roman yes. nose now, and it's come to mean a very particular shape of nose. But the but the argument is that basically, you know, upper class or, or prestigious people in the Roman era, if you look at their portraits, they tended to be drawn with very unusual or distinctive noses, but there wasn't a particular style. Roman nose or, or prestigious nose in the Roman era just meant interesting or weird or unusual nose a a nose with sort of a very prominent bridge is what it's come to mean more recently um and I don't know exactly when but yeah the the at least a couple of historians have said that that is even that the idea that there is sort of a standard of what a Roman nose was is not what it originally was it was just sort of they've got a really impressively unusual nose interesting but also the, the the bit about it that I really like, there are quite a few nice texts where they draw people's noses and compare them to the faces of animals. So it's sort of like phrenology, but it's sort of saying, if you have a particular shape of nose that makes you look like a donkey, then your personality is like a donkey's. So they were trying to evaluate people's sort of personalities Ooh. based on whether they looked more like a horse or a donkey. The illustrations are, are fantastic. But yeah, no, it's sort of... If you're like this, then you are quick to anger. I think that was one of the donkey ones. Um, but yeah, so so it's using the nose as the with the idea that it sort of demonstrates certain qualities about who you are as a person. Gosh, now I want to know what my nose says about me. It looks normal. I've got a little bobbly <laughs> bit not, on the end. I'm not an expert, I would say. I'm probably not much used to you on <laughs> No, now to find someone who's an expert on uh, what on defining your nose and what it means about your personality you know I can just imagine just I don't know just fortune tellers sort of reading your hand just reading your nose to tell you what your what your future holds because it can tell your personality traits I don't know if there's anyone still doing that today you may have to travel back in time to the maybe it's a niche that I need to take up now I'm just like this is my new thing there's a gap in the market (laughs) there's a gap in the market yeah In our case study today, we're going to look at a book and a film titled Perfume, The Story of a Murderer. The book was written in the 1980s and it was made into a film in the mid-2000s. Basically, it's set in 1700s France and is about a man who was born into poverty, but with a remarkably acute sense of smell. After a bit of trial and error, he's able to get work as a perfumier and tries to capture the scent of everyday things, glass, stones, and then finally humans. He murders young women so he can then capture their odour, and he's trying essentially to make what he sees as the perfect scent. And the end of both the film and the book shows his endeavours were not a delusion, because when he sprays himself with this final perfect scent, the people around him collapse into a mass orgy, and then finally rip him apart and eat him. So I'm sure there will be many different interpretations of what this all means. But in the context of what we're talking about here in the podcast, what's particularly relevant is the changing social meaning of smell in the time in which the novel is set. Because the 1700s is a point when there's a real shift in understanding of smell, from seeing it as something necessary and useful, an important component of life, to seeing it more as a nuisance and a problem. Uh, And most importantly, in the context of perfume as being animalistic and primitive. So this growing understanding is really emphasized in the work of both Sigmund Freud and Charles Darwin. According to Freud, the reduced importance of smell was part of the evolutionary process, a sort of step towards man becoming more civilized. Freud didn't think smell was valuable to modern man and viewed it as savage and unevolved. 
Sight and hearing were seen as senses of reason and civilization, and so naturally took priority over the sense of smell. There were also class-based distinctions where, like with the novel perfume, the lower classes were more interested and more aware of smell than their more refined betters. The only exceptions to this being the insane and the perverted, who were seen as also appreciating the sense of smell. And where smell was still considered acceptable, the form it took was different from before. So while before the late 1700s, perfumes and incenses tended to be musky in odour, like frankincense and amber, acceptable fragrances in the 1800s moved away from these more musky smells, which were seen as too strong and too animalistic, and in favour of lighter floral scents like lavender, violet and rose, which were seen as more civilised and acceptable in polite society. In this short clip, Dr. Noel Gallagher explores the cultural life of the nose in 18th century British literature and art, and how it became a symbol of fears around class instability, immigration, and sexual promiscuity. I'm a literary critic by trade, with a particular focus on the literature of the 18th century. And for the past uh, six years or so, I've been working on a book about the representation of venereal disease in the long 18th century, so broadly 1660 to 1800. We have lots of medical histories of syphilis uh, from this period, and, and, a period in which there was believed to be a venereal disease epidemic in Britain. And I wanted to do something a little bit different for my book. So essentially, instead of focusing on the real-life experience of, um, of, of living with, dying from, coping with venereal disease in the 18th century, instead, I look at how the disease was represented in literature and visual art. And broadly speaking, the book looks at the kinds of concepts or ideas that become associated with venereal disease in 18th century uh, literature and art. And one of those concepts was the nose, the disfigured nose. Um, and anyone here who's a clinician or a retired clinician will know that there's an obvious biological or physiological basis for that connection. But it goes, I think, far beyond uh, the, the, the connection with the symptoms of venereal disease. So I want to take as my starting point today Lawrence Stern's nine-volume novel, Tristram Shandy, which hopefully is a novel uh, lots of you know or have heard of. So this nine-volume comic masterpiece was published um, by Stern between 1759 and 1767, and it features a hero who believes his life has been uh, irreparably damaged by the fact that his nose was catastrophically crushed during a tragic accident at birth by a misapplication of the newly invented forceps. And he makes noses a theme in his autobiographical text because he feels that his crushed nose has had such a defining influence on his life. And he writes a chapter on noses in the text. And in that chapter, he explains, oops, sorry, by the word nose, throughout all this long chapter of noses and in every other part of my work, where the word nose occurs, I declare, by that word, I mean a nose, and nothing more or less. Now, even without Tristram's insistence to the contrary here, no reader of this sentence could be in doubt that, to misquote Freud, sometimes a nose is not just a nose. 
Elsewhere in the novel, Stern gestures towards a long tradition of jokes that compared the size of a man's nose with the size of his penis. So uh, think of the um, jokes about the size of Trump's hands that were in common currency a few years ago. The same kind of jokes applied in a lot of 18th century joke books and tavern songs. So there were lots of um, innuendos about women preferring a, a man with a long nose. And this joke was surely not that far from Joshua Reynolds's mind when he painted his famous portrait of the very long-nosed Lawrence Stern in 1760 with the elongated finger there drawing attention to the, the length of Stern's impressive uh, nose. But the obsession with noses in Tristram Shandy also, I want to suggest to you today, has a much darker meaning. It references a literary and visual culture that used the nose as a gauge of sexual health and that equated the disfigured nose with the threat of venereal infection. Now there was, of course, a built-in biological basis for this association. Of all the symptoms of syphilis, or the pox, as it was colloquially, colloquially known in this period, none was more obvious or more horrifying than the collapse of the bridge of the nose. Afflicted with this particular complication, the infected man found that his face increasingly resembled a skull, providing a graphic and obtrusive warning that the wages of sin is death. Yet the link between venereal disease and nasal disfiguration, as the medical professionals among us will attest, is not necessarily an inevitable one. In some patients, syphilis never enters the tertiary stage, the stage at which nasal um, destruction can occur. And even among those who do contract tertiary syphilis, only a portion will experience the destruction of nasal cartilage. Even given the existence of real-life noseless men and women on the streets of 18th century London, the realities of life during what medical historians believe to have been a venereal disease epidemic still seem inadequate to explain the extraordinary proliferation of no-nose jokes in 18th century British literary and visual culture. From the mid-1600s onwards, this one facial feature took on a cultural life of its own, providing the punchline for comic novels, joke books, satires, cartoons. It also inspired eccentric literary set pieces with texts like rhinology or a critical dissertation on noses. So these are some of the texts I've spent the last few years reading alongside works like Stern's. Now, one reason for the popularity of this material, these kinds of no-nose jokes, I'd like to suggest, was that there was a wealth of meaning that had already accrued around the nose as a defining feature. For centuries, the nose had been used as a marker of class, race, and religious identity. And in figurative use, the, the nose is still often referenced in catchphrases dealing with the formation of social groups or the policing of social boundaries. So consider phrases like looking down one's nose or turning one's nose up or holding one's nose in the air, right? All of these phrases use the nose to refer to essentially class-based forms of discrimination. The nose was also essential to religious distinctions. So Christians had spent centuries distinguishing their allegedly straight noses from the hooked noses of Jews. And Anglicans distinguished themselves from dissenters on the grounds that the latter sung hymns through the nose. They nosed their, their, their singing. 
Perhaps most important of all, noses played a key role in the 18th century's new and developing attempts to distinguish between different races. As influential treatises by the natural historian Oliver Goldsmith, the French naturalist Georges-Louis Leclerc, and the Swiss modernizer of physiognomy, Johann Lavater, referenced the shape and size of the nose as one of the features that distinguished between men from different racial backgrounds. Welcome to Recipes of Yore. We're going to explore some unusual medical recipes from the past. The way in which the word recipes was used in the past is a bit different from how it's used today. So it could mean recipes for cooking, for medicine, or even recipes for cleaning products or cosmetics. Very few of them were treatments we would recognise in the 21st century, and certainly none of these should be tried at home. Recipe books were used to treat family, especially children, as well as friends and neighbours. They existed as family heirlooms that passed medical knowledge, usually from mother to daughter, for the treatment of the household. One Scottish printed recipe book, which went through many editions in the late 1600s and into the 1700s, contained treatments for a wide range of nose-related complaints. The simplest was to stop bleeding at the nose. Quote, Stuff up cobwebs and sugar. Other treatments for nosebleeds were a bit more involved, including, quote, cupping glasses applied to the feet, the bending of the little finger on the same side, a great quantity of cold water thrown into the face at diverse times in a short space, vinegar put into the ear, a bean or piece of money bound to the root of the nose between the eyebrows. In another recipe to stop yourself from sneezing, quote, take the vapour of hot water into the nose, Anoint the nose with fresh butter. Snuff up warm milk into the nose. Another Scottish recipe book, this time published in Falkirk and dated 1785, recommended a wide range of treatments which would cure all diseases of the nostrils. Quote, Outwardly, to cool the body, apply cold water to diverse parts, pouring it upon the arms and putting the feet therein. The juice of nettles is extolled, either given inwardly or applied to the temples mints put in the nose. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at rcpeheritage and we have a Just Giving page. RCPE Heritage linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.